What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram, and our website, talklouderpodcast.com. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today I'm really excited to have our two guests. We have Jeff Poole from the drummer from Legs Diamond and Michael Prince, the keyboard player and rhythm guitarist from Legs Diamond. And as a kid who grew up in San Antonio, uh, I can tell you that Legs Diamond is etched in my musical memories uh, forever and ever and ever. They were played on the radio constantly by legendary San Antonio DJ Joe the Godfather Anthony. Their concerts were huge events, the kind of thing where I'd gather 20 of my buddies and we'd just make a big party out of it. And uh, they always did well in San Antonio. Always a great show. Always a great time. Uh, couldn't be happier to have them on the podcast. They today. were they were one of the bands that, that uh, you know, San Antonio was a market for them because of, like you said, the late, great Joe Anthony. Yeah. Who maybe, here's a scenario, like the first time they come through town, they're an opening band. They're on the bill with, you know, Axe and Ted Nugent and Angel or something like that, and they're first. Right. And then like three months later, they're still on the road, and they're coming back, and this time they're the headliner in a matter yeah. of months. Like beginning of summer, they're playing at 6 p.m. At the end of the summer, they're playing at 9 p.m. You know, and that, that means, you know, because of because of uh, Joe Anthony, because of 99.5 Kiss, because of uh, rock fans requesting their songs and, and them just being a great, a great band and, and opening the show and blowing people's minds. So, yeah, um, I know, uh, um, and I, we've been talking, um, you know, off and on Dave, just is the reasons why we have a podcast. This is the, one of the reasons we have a podcast is the yeah. story that you just told growing up in San Antonio. It's, it's related to uh, a couple more hours South me growing up in Corpus Christi, and having uh, friends who had a band, and I was very young, 11 or 12 years old, and I had these, uh, I talked to my mom into letting these, this this band rehearse in, in our garage at our house. And, uh, you know, when they would leave, I would go back there and say, I'm locking up for y'all, see you next week, you know, or whatever. And I wouldn't lock, I would go in and get on their drums and get on their marshals and get on their Les Pauls and play their shit and... And it was fun. Those were the first like real drums and real like martial amps I ever played on were these guys. But anyway, the point is they played all these great cover songs and they played they played Legs Diamond songs. And so that was I was like, wow, that's so good. You know, for a second I was like, Man, these guys are awesome. They write great songs and then realized they were a cover band. They covered Stage Fright. Yeah. My Legs Diamond. And it was like one of my favorite song because i would sit back there are you kidding i had a free concert every time they practiced so <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean yeah and, you know a little uh feeble mind uh and uh i was like who's that and they were like it's this band called legs diamond realizing later one of my older brothers had a legs diamond record and the rest is history um so yeah. they they definitely played a part in me realizing that it wasn't really always what's on the radio. It's what, you know, your your big brother's record collection or, you know, the the people in uh, a few grades above you 
who have a band who play this song, they go, oh, what is that? And then you, it's talking to you. And I don't know. Yeah. It's it's just really uh, going to be a great episode, getting to talk to these guys who were there changing the way uh, people fell in, in love with rock and roll or just continuing that, right? Yeah. I think anyone listening to the show who grew up in San Antonio like I did will absolutely, I can, will totally vouch for me that Legs Diamond, they didn't get the national uh, superstardom. They were, they were, they were big stars in San Antonio. They're from Los Angeles, but uh, because of Joe Anthony playing their songs on the radio, off the top of my head, I remember uh, Walk Away, Fugitive, Woman, Stage Fright, uh, Out on Bail, Underworld King, Rat Race. I mean, these are, I mean, how many songs that I just rattle off the top of my head? A lot. Sat and, Peacock is another one that yeah, used to get in there. And yeah. uh, Legs Diamond was all over the radio in San Antonio, and their concerts were a big deal. And uh, I couldn't be happier to have them on the podcast today. I got to give a, a shout to Harold Harris, please, uh, a mutual friend of ours. He's uh, friends with Legs Diamond and made this possible by putting me in touch with Michael Prince. And uh, yeah, so without further ado, I should we probably should just get right into it. Michael, no, we Prince. could have a whole. <laughs> our intro could be as long as an episode. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, there's so much to talk about with Legs Diamond, but. We've got Michael Prince and Jeff Poole with us today, and uh, let's just go ahead and get into it. Hey, man, it's great to have you guys on the podcast today. Thank you. Today we have uh, Michael and Jeff from the legendary rock and roll band from Los Angeles, California, Legs Diamond. Legs Diamond. Man, How the hell are you guys? Here. Dave, Jason, pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks again for showing the interest and in, uh, having us on. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, as someone who grew up in San Antonio, uh, Legs Diamond is embedded in my musical memories. Uh, of course, all the radio hits and then the concerts were not just concerts. They were events. I remember me and my friends, you made plans to go to a Legs Diamond gig. You gathered as many people together as you could and you made a big party out of it. And I don't know how you, how you guys did in other markets, but every time you played San Antonio, there was a, a good, good sized crowd for a band that we didn't see in Circus Magazine, for example. You I know. feel like the state of Texas might have been a pocket for you guys. Is that, was that about right? Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, describe, um, describe, you know, between like, um, you know, fuck it, we're going to date each other anyway. Like late 70s on through the 80s when you guys had somewhat, there were certain markets in the U.S. where you guys had some um, marginal successes and in some markets they were even better because you had a radio DJ who loved your, your music. Where were those other markets besides Texas? And how did they compare? Yeah. Good. Uh, California to a certain extent. Um the Detroit area, the East Coast. Uh, and one thing that Joe told us the last time, Joe Anthony, the last time we talked to him, is um, his one regret, regret was not telling all his other DJ buddies in different areas how well we were doing in his market. And normally those guys would talk like once a week and say, hey, Kansas's new album is really lighting up the phones here. And this new new band is lighting up the phones. But he he said, I always wanted to keep you guys as my little secret. 
And this, I don't know what year he died, but this was this was probably within six months of when he passed away. And he was at a smaller radio station. And I went, damn, it would have been nice if he would have told his friends because they play what they'll try playing, you know, what the other uh, DJs are successful with. Yeah, you can't really you can't really blame him. I feel like maybe your fans as well as. Uh, you know, we're all fans. Everyone here in the room, we're all fans of something that we're like, this this band speaks to me, therefore they are my band, and I shall I shall promote them by walking into a room of rock and roll people, because I can tell by you know, the smell, uh, that they will love what I love. And you start talking about a new about your band that you uh, are championing, right? And and either people jump in or they do not. And and you know that word of mouth thing is how you you still even today with the world today I feel you still win your fans one at a time. You can do a massive wash on social media, whatever you want. You can throw dollars at a single, at a record, at a tour, at an idea, or whatever. And the sheep will probably follow that dollar bill and just take a bite and then you know drink the punch and whatever and become whatever it is but that usually creates fads unless it's this uh, sort of slow crawl into this giant uh sort of even cult following or megastardom now no one here in the room knows megastardom but we we can relate on 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 what i just said as fans of something where like you 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 is a it's a perfect analogy joe saying you guys were my band and yeah. maybe i should have shared yeah. a little bit more you, you know what it was that was love michael he was he was trying to tell you he loved you he was trying That's to true. tell you something it's like i you know maybe maybe i could have done more and you know maybe I mean, it sounds like a slight bit. I hate to call it guilt, but he was just telling you he loved you. Well, it's 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 a little bittersweet because we are very grateful for the for what he did for us. And if there's one place where you could be uh, really popular, San Antonio would be my first pick. Uh, the audience is incredible. Uh, rock and roll fans that really, truly know what they're, you know, want to see. And some of the other bands that are popular, there, are bands that I love as well. But it, it's still important that um, the other markets where we did well were because we were touring a lot. And uh, even if we didn't have the radio play that we would have loved to have in those areas, the fact that we were playing with some really high uh, volume shows, like with the Ted Nugent tours and playing with Kiss and some of the bands we played with, got us to some markets that uh, without the radio play, we still got uh, an audience. I think my uh, one of my best, uh, I think, compliment that I got was the last show we did in San Antonio. Uh, the drummer of Axe uh, came up to me. I'd never met him before. And he said that he saw us in uh, Detroit, or um, actually it was Kalamazoo, Michigan with Rush. He went to that show and he said, watching that show, he decided he wanted to be a drummer. Now, I'm sure he was talking about Neil Peart, but of course I took it as well, because I was playing drums. <laughs> no, but, um, it was you. But it was it was important. I'm because, sorry, Neil. Who? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, because, you know, when people go to a show and they see something they really like and it influences them enough to want to, you know, emulate that and become a musician themselves. And by the way, he's a great drummer. I, I loved the the fact that we played together and watching them. He's a great drummer. So it was it was it was a nice compliment. But um, yeah, it's a bittersweet pill that uh, Joe Anthony kept us from some areas we might have done better. But again, we don't have regrets over that. There's people that have said, do you guys and this is what I like. The people that have listened to our records and do get into it um, seem to love them, which means we did something right. And that's all we really set out to do was write music, perform music, and try to do the best records we could. Yeah. The the fact that we didn't make it into the superstardom, as as you uh, put out, you know, you said, and it's true. It's okay. At least we got a chance to, um, as I like to say, we got to open the door and look at success. I just wish I could have walked in the room, sat down and put my feet up. Yeah. You know, I call it, I, I call it, you have seen the top of the mountain, True, but you're, but you're, you, you're not a, you're not a good climber and you're afraid of heights. Well, <laughs> you know, the thing is, is there's so many good bands that will never make it to the level we did that it would be selfish to feel bad that we didn't get more out of it. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've seen some other great bands that just blew me away and no one else has ever heard of them. They never got a record deal, period. They never got to go on tour. So we, we thank our lucky stars, too, that we were able to do what we did. And if anything, it, it brought us to you guys to do this interview. So we did Excellent. something right. Excellent. Yeah. I feel like there's a kung fu mind about how to feel about that. You you, you touched on all of these emotional things like you 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 can't you can't get mad. You can't. Uh, you're you're extremely grateful right and you don't um you 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 don't feel deserving you don't feel any guilt you have no regret these this is a kung fu thing this is like a zen uh type of an attitude where as to where a lot of bands shoot themselves in the foot because they want more and more and more and then they're i think their songs kind of die after that well grasshopper so. the <laughs> <laughs> the the truth is is you have to feel lucky for the things that you do accomplish, mm. and you can't yeah. regret the things that you didn't do. I mean, life is a miracle at best, anyway. So yeah. the fact that we were able to do some incredible things, we go back to some of the concerts that we played. Going, you know, we were really there, and we got to experience some really cool stuff. I mean, uh, for example, the Ted Nugent that was pretty much the height of Ted Nugent, and some of those concerts were. They were in arenas, they were in stadiums, and we were uh, became super good friends with every band we played with, well, yeah. almost every band we played with, and um, we had a great time, and yeah. we learned a lot, and uh, you know, we have a lot of memories so, to, to go along with this uh, story. So you guys toured with Ted Nugent, um, a U.S. tour. Was there any, was there any, uh, I mean, I want to get into all the bands that you toured with, but and the same answer I want you to give me, uh, what markets, if you if you can, or even other countries overseas or whatever. Um, can you give us like a shopping list of all of the, you know, when back when bands used to be kick ass <laughs> and, and tell us, you know, who that's you why Jeff's to... that's why Jeff's here. He can remember about three times as many bands as I can. Okay. Well, you guys can battle over who answers the question. Give go, us a list of go, all Jeff. of the awesome well, bands. I mean, you mentioned Rush and Kiss and Axe and and Ted Nugent. I mean, did you did you go to Europe with anyone? Did you go to you know? Uh, when, when we went to Europe, we we actually headlined. 
Um, oh, cool. Music for Nations put together a tour in the UK uh, with one of their other bands, and we shared a bus. They actually became our text for that tour, which we wouldn't have ever asked them to do. But Martin Hooker, who ran Music for Nations, said, look, you guys are going to go on tour with Legs Diamond. And we did like large clubs. Yeah. One of them belonged to one of the guys from, uh, uh, was it not Megadeth? Uh, uh, the one where the the lead guitar player flies an airplane. Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. Oh. It was called the, it was called this the little, Oval. This it little was called band, the Oval. Iron Maiden, yeah. Oh, little okay. Club. We had to take cold showers because there was no hot water left. And, well, uh, that's rock and We roll. probably needed cold showers anyway after yeah, the show. Good for you. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was about probably only two or three weeks, but it was a blast going all through the English countryside and stuff. And I hate to do uh, this again, Michael, but what year was that? And what record were you touring technically? I want to say that was probably around 95 oh. and it was the wish. Okay. okay. And we ended up, uh, our, our last show was the marquee in London. Oh, legendary. Right. Yeah. yeah. Legendary. And we, we knew it was legendary, but, at that point, I didn't know Jimi Hendrix had played there and all these other. I'm going like, wow, that place yeah. is that place was cool. Yeah. yeah. And Iron Maiden played there and Twisted Sister played there and everyone who's anyone has played there, kind of like the Hammersmith. Jeff, give us a list of and this is for really for me and Dave's own giggly uh, fandom here. Yeah. Uh, fanboy shit is. Because we love Nugent, we love Rush, uh, we like Axe. What? Notice I didn't say love Axe. Uh, can you can you give us a list of all these badass? I mean, we could talk about Kiss all day. You guys playing with Kiss, but what's a shopping list of bands you guys have either opened for or that maybe somebody opened for you and now they're mega stars? Tell us some. Tell us some of that. Well, I bring up Ted Nugent because we were signed to their agency, uh, DMA. So with that agency, we were able to do a lot of shows with uh, Ted Nugent and with uh, Golden Earring, one of my favorites. Oh, the drummer is just, uh, oh just amazing. Yes, he is. And, and I will say that at the end of one of the tours we did with them, he grabs me and he goes, and this is a funny story. He goes, Jeff, tonight we drink. And I thought, okay, I'm not a heavy drinker, but he puts down a bottle of cognac. Oh, and yeah. He's making me go back and forth with him. I'm ready to bow out. I can't go any further. Yeah. And he finishes it like it was nothing. So, um, and and we used to stay at the same hotel. And I remember uh, Rick and I and, and Michael, we'd, we'd play football with those guys in the hallway. You know, we would say, they didn't know. They obviously big, uh, you know, soccer fans. Yeah. They didn't know American football. So we would joke and say, uh, okay, well, hike the ball. And then we would just run and tackle them and knock them down. And they're looking at us like, what are you doing? We go, no, that's the rules. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, we were having a blast with those guys. But um, wow. uh, one of my Earring. other Where is Golden Earring from? series of co-headline dates with sticks. Where is Golden Earring from? Real quick. Sorry for my own brain. Uh, they're from. I want to say Holland. I, yeah, I think they're either somewhere around they're Holland. They, they weren't right. British. They weren't no. British. No. And I, I think that. they finally just broke up because uh uh, either one of the members just died or he got really sick and had to retire. So I think they've decided they're going to they're gonna call it quits. But they, they were around for a really long time. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, we were we were pretty much the guys after a show. We'd have a couple beers. Those guys they drank the straight hard stuff, and I knew I knew from the first time we hung out with them. I can't even sit at a table and drink with these guys. They're, I'd be dead. This isn't yeah. going to end well, right? No, yeah. not for me. <laughs> so we also, I believe, I think it's 1977. I'm not sure. We we have the uh, the state. Uh, I think it was the indoor arena largest show that was Dead Nugent, and then it was another uh, category. Where it was uh, smaller venues, but it was still supposed to be the largest of that type. We played with Sammy Hagar. That was the Swing Auditorium. Wow. And uh, we were able to play, you know, with Montrose back in his heyday as well. Yes. Uh, uh, we were the band that did the opening tour of the babies. Mm -hmm. When they first oh. came to America, they pitted us with them. So we did all the shows with them. And uh, that was a trip. We played New York. We played a lot of different Detroit, uh, Ohio. We played a lot of different dates with those guys. We were we played with the cars. They um, oh, yeah. They booked us for a while. We um, and you mentioned sticks, yeah. Sticks, how was the Grand, Grand Illusion, Illusion tour. tour and the tour oh after God, that? I love that, record. which I think was Pieces of Eight, and that's yeah. late 70s, 77, yeah. 78. And yeah. that it was fantastic. I mean, I, I'm a fan of that band, and to yeah. watch them night after night, uh, it was kind of like when we played with Alice Cooper. I would go to the soundboard after our show and just watch his show because he was so amazing. So we yeah, did. That's like going to school with Alice Cooper as like well. Going to school. Yeah, I just saw him about a month ago, and he's still amazing. Yeah, he yeah, is. So, so I, I wanted to uh, to kind of put some chron chronology, chronological order on into all this. Um, I want to come back to this point where we're talking about now, sort of your your commercial peak, if you will. But I want to go back to the beginnings of the band. Uh, your your first two records came out in 77. You were based out of the Los Angeles area. At that time, when you're getting started, what is your scene like in L.A.? Are, who, are, who are your peers? What venues are you playing? What kind of buzz are you creating? You're on Mercury Records, so you, you've got a major label deal. Um, are you doing gigs with like Van Halen or the early version of Quiet Riot? Are you not part of that L.A. scene? You part of a different L.A. scene? Tell me, tell me what your scene was like when the band was starting. I, I'm going to let Michael tell the story of uh, Van Halen. Okay. And Quiet Riot also was with our management company at the time, so we did shows with him as well. And we we actually shared a rehearsal room with Quiet Riot. It it had two stages facing each other. So, and this is back when you used to rehearse seven rehearse seven nights a week. Uh, it was cool. That was the original, you know, Quiet Riot, you know. And later on, we became friends with you know Frankie and and miss him. Sorry about what. Really sorry about what happened to him. Uh, as you get older, 60 something seems pretty young, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, the Kiss story uh, was, uh, was it the Kiss story you wanted me no, to tell? No, you were going to tell the Van Halen story. Oh, the Van Halen story. Which God. is funny, but I don't right. you have to be there. So so Jeff and I are, are visiting uh, this girl who was a friend of the band, and his dad used to be my dad's uh, publisher. And so we had a couple beers and she goes, Hey, I want to put some makeup on you guys. And we're going, all right, whatever. And so she did like the whole, you know, eye makeup and all that stuff. And we're hanging out, having a few more beers and we completely forgot we had makeup on, you know? So we went down to the rainbow <laughs> and at some point we're going up the stairs 
uh, on the second floor is where the bathrooms are. So it's time to go to the bathroom. And there's another club up there. So we get to the top of the stairs and right behind us is, is Eddie and David and taps us on the shoulder, pulls us over to the side, which is where the cigarette machine was. And um, Eddie's going, man, anytime, anytime you guys need an opening act, we don't care where you're playing, where it is, just call us, man. We'll open for you guys anytime. And we're going, okay, cool. You know, and, <laughs> and then they went their way and we went our way. And about an hour later, we get home and I'm looking in the mirror and going, holy crap. Because we had <laughs> girls makeup on, you know, full on girls makeup on. But uh, the funny thing was, we, we did get signed before them. So that's why, and they were smart. They were good business people. They were talking to us, but we were still at across the country at an opening band level. So we couldn't really dictate, oh, we want Van Halen to play before us, you know, because it was Kiss or REO Speedwagon yeah. or Ted Nugent. That was it was their show. We were what was just your, lucky to be at there. That, at that point, what was your discography? Uh, I don't even think our, I'm not even sure our first album had been out, come out. Oh, yeah. At, yeah. Okay. at the time. We were playing and headlining the Whiskey and the Starwood, which was a really good rock club at right. the time. Yeah, and that, they were like headlining in, in uh, kind of the house band for Gazaris yeah. and a place that was in their neighborhood in um, Pasadena, which we did play one time, and I forget the name of the club. But uh, they were headlining their dates. We were headlining our dates. And um, I think it was attractive to try to get both bands together. But... Uh, I think that some of the promoters that were booking these clubs weren't really that keen on it because either band was selling out the club. And if you pay for both of them, you're still only going to fit so many people in the club and it probably didn't work. So it's a shame because we could have played with them. And by the way, that joke about uh, opening for them anytime years later, we'd be somewhere going, you know, maybe we should call them now and say we're ready. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, they're they're another example of a band that makes uh, all the right decisions, sticks yeah. together, and uh, gets the breaks. Because you've got to have everything. You've got to have an act. You've got to have the songs. You have to have the talent. But you also have to make the right decisions. And you got to be lucky as well. You've got to have the right team behind you, and that includes management. That includes a record company that's willing to do whatever. And then if you've got the talent like Van Halen had, that would go out there and lay it out on stage it's a recipe for success yeah. and uh, hats off to them. They, they accomplished more than well, most bands. Yeah, sure. And, and so for, they, for people old enough, I just throw this in there. Um, Cause we used to tour with black Oak, Arkansas too. Uh, wow. If you've ever seen Jim Dandy and David Lee Roth's act and what they wore, it, there's something similar about it. Yeah. yeah. Very. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. love them both. I love them both. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you didn't a, do the Van that's, a, that's sort of. I'm sorry, Dave. That's a consummate front man. You're you're sort of molding there when you oh, take totally stuff like that, and you know, throw some Bon Scott, throw some Janis Joplin, which is just you know, Steven Tyler stole her whole thing. He sang like her, he dressed like her, everything. But Those you, types of iconic, mm -hmm. you know, with any kind, they can sing anything you want. Range. They got the cat yowl. They got. The dark, you know, they can do it all. They can sing heavy metal. They can sing rock and roll. They can sing blues and Motown and funk and whatever. Because of it's all that. That's all that. I truly believe that Bon Scott doesn't get the uh, 
the recognition, the the respect that he still deserves. Mm-hmm. And even though Brian Johnson, uh, the new guy, has been uh, has been saying that in every fucking interview for forty years, that it's all about Bond. It's all about Bond. He showed everybody how to do it. Da 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 da. And I think that Roth and and Dandy, sorry, total the fanboy thing is finally turned on. May I interrupt here for just a moment and just yeah. like bull in a china shop, just knock some shit over that still has to do legs. Okay, legs diamond. When I was a young boy growing up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Ooh, rich theater. Yes. Um, I was probably 11 or 12 years old, so that would have been um 76 i was it was you know 75 76 77 okay it, with those formative years there you know 11 12 13 completely obsessed with rock rock and roll music elton john queen alice cooper uh kiss uh there were these guys, These they were a few years older than me, that went to the school across the street. With, I was younger, so I was in the junior high or whatever. And I used to see them, and I knew they had a band, and I knew one of the guys, and I used to go surfing with the drummer and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they were looking for a place to rehearse. I ran home. I told I told my mom. I go, hey man, the the you know our washroom was an enclosed. You know, a, you know, it wasn't a car. It was a carport, but then there's a room with a lock and stuff, right? And uh, we kept tools and bikes and whatever. And uh, I'm like, mom, that'd be a great rehearsal room. And here I am being sort of managerial at like 12 years old. You know, um, can these guys? Re- you know, some of them are live in the neighborhood. Can you know? Can can they rehearse in there? Only if they play my Christmas party for free. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So I ran back to school and I told them, you guys can rehearse in my, just for lack of a better term, my garage. And you guys can stay set up and locked. And I'll be the watchdog on all your gear. Because they had real gear, strats and marshals. And I think the kit was a was a, an old Rogers. But it was a double bass and four yeah, tom nice. rack and two floors and, you know. And I'm still in contact with that guy. His name is Chip Stella. He lives in Dallas now. But we we're Corpus Christi rockers, kids. And here's the, here's where I'm, I'm going. They they were just a cover band. They covered. They were called Rocks, which is oh, still yeah. re, still related to you guys. We, we remember them. I don't think that they, well. There's probably a hundred bands. Sorry, Jeff. There's probably a hundred bands called Rocks, but they didn't really go anywhere. I think we played with fifty of them. They didn't, yeah. They didn't do anything outside my mom's kick-ass Christmas party. They played a couple of little pubby-type places in Corpus, but they didn't really do anything. The coolest part was that I had a rock, I had a pet rock band in my garage. That when they left, I could play their drums and plug in the Strat into the Marshall and make sound, even though I didn't know what the fuck I was doing until about six months later. So anyway, they played this array of most awesome rock music that i was very very new to they opened up an entire world to me like i said i already told you who i was into i was into all the biggies right kiss it when i found kiss it destroyed my brain in the most beautiful way but the point is this 
they played this song. They among others, you know, they covered the Cars. They did like all the the you know, Cars only had the debut and Candio, the first two records. So they were playing the radio songs off of that. And they were playing Nugent. They were playing, you know, Moxie. They were playing, uh, you know, uh, anyway, they played this song called Stage Fright. And heard of that. Yeah. You guys might have heard of it. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, I've heard of that. Me too. I'm still scared of it. And, uh, and then I found the record in my older brother's record collection. So I'm putting Ooh. all this shit together and I'm going, this song Stage Fright is like, proto heavy metal to me ah, da, 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 da. you know and i'm like going wait a minute this is it's black sabbath it's montrose it's more than that it's it's the beginnings of what was coined later on as new wave of british heavy metal to me there was something about that that had what you know diamond head and iron maiden and 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 uh that's good enough that i would soon to fall in love with years later but it was a gateway drug stage fright i got the record my mind you know sat peacock and rat race and all this shit started to to completely uh make me like feel like i needed to go to the fucking hospital <laughs> uh it was the most beautiful thing ever and i just wanted to share that with you and then the you know the subsequent records the you know a diamond is a hard rock you know the and then later on out on bail i heard on 99.5 kiss in san antonio all the fucking time you know with uh, you know woman and just all that shit that dave can chime in at any point and say that was my child that was me growing up that was part of the thing so i'm just basically a circle jerk here to tell you that stage fright started this thing with me that was this other place other than you know the queen and elton and kiss and and of course uh rush and ufo and thin lizzie and you know nugent and i had all that shit on my walls everywhere and until it all turned into gene simmons but <laughs> the point is exactly the fucking same stage fright is still one of my favorite fucking songs of all time no, you guys thanks. had this deep you right you guys had this deep purple thing about you that i don't feel like gets discussed in my uh circle very much yeah i think they, that the the you know the organ tone and the whatever you guys were doing as rhythmically on keys michael and and uh rick's voice and just everything about it had this like that's why I see what I'm saying with the, the new wave of British heavy metal. There was this thing going on that I didn't know about that American bands were even doing. Another band that did it without keys, of course, was Riot. Another Riot band we played was, with. Yeah, of course, of course you did. Yeah. Of course you did. Yeah. Because you you guys were big in San Antonio and so were they. Can, can I elaborate on that? that uh, yes, please stop connection? me because I will go an hour. Well, no, I mean, first of all, your take on your childhood with uh, Stage Fright we share because I believe I was only nine years old on that album. So it was my childhood as well. well I, was, that's the I was, most, I had even most, gone through puberty when we did that album. Badass nine-year-old drumming so, I've ever yeah, heard. It was, in my uh, life. it was amazing, but I still had long hair. So that, that's good. Yeah, that's good. People have asked about the deep purple connection. And, and um, I think a lot of it has to do with, with the early days when Michael Diamond, AKA Michael Gargano and I started the band up in the Bay area. We were a guitar-oriented band, searching for a sound that we really wanted to have. And after a few 
fairly successful just playing clubs, but not, you know, not really good enough to be signed to a record label and tour. Uh, we had a conversation and I said, why don't we switch directions and add keyboards and go in that direction? Because Deep Purple was both Michael and I's favorite band. And he agreed and we actively looked. And so when we found Michael Prince and he joins the band, I like to say that that's the key to when the real leg diamond starts, because now we've, uh, we've developed a sound that we are happy with and we can go in this direction. And it was the fact that we were, we love deep purple. And through the years, we were very fortunate to become very good friends with all of them, uh, wow. including the road manager at the time when we were just starting out, we had, um, we used to go to Richie Blackmore's house. He would loan our guitar player at the time, his guitar. So um, there was not, a huge not really, connection there. Not really everybody and We weren't trying to that. sound like, well, I just want to point out, we were not trying to sound like Deep Purple, but adding the keyboards and with the B3 sound that, that Michael was, was giving, it started to lean in that direction. And that's when I think the Legs Diamond sound begins. And that's when the writing starts to become what it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I was going to ask, that's one of my questions here. Uh, you often, I've heard I can see you, that. That's why I said that. Yeah. That's my cheat sheet right there. I've, uh, <laughs> I've heard people refer to you as, uh, as the American deep purple. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that, because there are some songs to me that it's very evident and they are obviously the keyboard driven songs, but there's, right. uh, there's a good bit of your uh, repertoire that I don't see the deep purple connection. So I, I don't know if it's kind of a lazy description or if you feel like it's, there's some value to it or it's valid in some ways. Um, but I definitely hear it in the keyboard driven songs. Well, keep in mind that Michael Prince plays guitar as well. So some of his writings will be with keyboards, some of them with all guitar. So we go both directions and yeah. some of those all guitar songs um, are some of my favorites but uh, when he's playing on the keyboards, I think that's when we really establish that Deep Purple connection. Yeah. That's kind of a UFO sort of twist on things. Yeah. Another great band that was really popular in San Antonio. And fortunately, we did get to play with them while they were all still alive as well. Yeah. yeah I, I started out in high school or junior high school, probably the sixth grade learning how to play guitar because the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they didn't have keyboard players. So my mom started paying for guitar lessons and we rented an, an acoustic guitar. It was probably five bucks a month. And I'm going, why do I have to start on an acoustic guitars? And so anyway, but you have to learn how to play plectrum guitar. And, um, and then when we moved to Atlanta, I think she felt sorry for me because she pulled me out of um, what grade was it? I don't know. Jail. Midway, midway through the eighth grade. Uh, <laughs> you know, hey, we're moving. Cause I was supposed to graduate from the eighth grade. Anyway, she felt sorry for me, bought me an electric guitar. It was a Gibson. And so, but guitar was always my thing. And we finally found a guy who said he could play keyboards. And of course I've been taking piano lessons since I was seven. And, uh, his name was Oscar Lewis. And we kept saying, when are you going to get an organ? He goes, I, I, I'm getting it for Christmas. I went, cool. So he finally gets this organ. His dad buys him one. He brings it to rehearsal. It's this big. And it's 
the kind that has a fan in it. So when you hold the keys down, the fan is blowing air through the keys and the sound comes out a hole in the bottom of the organ. It was the, it sounded like a bad accordion. So we put a sure mic right up underneath there. And all you heard was the wind. It was like whistling into a mic and we go, Oscar, this organ is not, and put, and we found out he couldn't play. So <laughs> I said uh, to the guys in the band, I said, Hey, I can play a lot better than that. And they went, really? So I worked all summer bagging groceries at the grocery store and bought a, a ream organ, which was a poor man's Farfisa. So that's what I started with that. But once you put it through a Leslie, it sounded pretty damn good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a ream air condition system in my I home. have a ream, <laughs> a ream water heater. Yeah. 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 Good choice. Did you, you don't get, make organs anymore? There was a, I, I, I think I saw a story somewhere where, you know, the there's a famous story about uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss being interested in Van Halen when they were still a club band. And, and there was some back and forth. You guys, everyone here knows that story. But I, I think I heard there was a similar story with you guys and Gene Simmons. Is that is that correct? Was there a, a moment there in the early days when he was interested in producing you, managing you, taking you on tour? You did some dates on the yeah. Rock and Roll Over tour, I think. Hold on, he, he, let me get let me get a cup of cocoa and a cookie because this is going to be good. Well, I'll, I think we both have I'll Gene let, Simmons stories. I'll let Jeff chime in too, but um, we we have a friend that we've known for many years, um, Susan, and I think she was dating Gene for a while, but she loved our band. She brought Gene to a couple rehearsals, and wow, that turned into why we were opening shows for them. He wanted us to sign with their agency i believe right jeff yes their agency which we didn't um but one night at a rehearsal he comes up to me and he goes and remember i'm really green behind the ears we haven't even recorded our first album we were probably negotiating but we hadn't signed it yet and uh he goes uh would it be okay if kiss did satin peacock and i'm going no one of your songs. That's one of our songs. Because, you know, you think you're going to be well, at least as big as Kiss, you know. So long story short, I never even knew why he wanted to do it other than it was a pretty good song. But then literally 15 years ago, it dawned on me what the lyrics are in the chorus. It's kiss me if you miss me, but don't mess up my hair. So it was a perfect song for them. And mm -hmm. I just wish I would have said yes. <laughs> it's a great rock and roll song period yeah, yeah if only you knew then what you know you now you don't need gene to tell you even though he pretty much told you that's a good fucking song so you ended up doing some uh dates on the rock and roll over tour is that is that right well it was 77 so whatever tour that was i don't know yeah it was it was yeah. all it was all stadiums and um the yeah. whole audience would show up in kiss makeup so for us, because it was just the two bands, it was a little daunting when you walk up there and they and all you can see is kiss makeup. But yeah. I have to say the the crowd was great. They loved us. And uh, however many minutes we were given for the first show, they added minutes for every show afterwards because kiss loved us. Do you yeah, think I, it was? I think I think kiss was even shocked because and all of our friends, musician friends have been telling us, oh, man, you don't want to open for kiss. We're going why oh they're gonna they're gonna throw you know rotten tomatoes at you they're gonna you know they all they want to see is kiss they're gonna all have kiss makeup on that's the only band in the world they like and we're going 
damn. So anyway, we set up and we do our first show and the audience loved us, you know, and after the show, uh, uh, Paul and Gene came into our dressing room because I think our first show, they only gave us 30 minutes. And they go, guys, that was really good. From now on, you get 45 minutes. And that that's a confident band that does that. It yeah. was the opposite of opening for the babies. The babies, we would kick their butt every night and they kept making our set shorter and shorter. And then they stopped moving their gear out of the way. And then we had some of our equipment out on our road cases because it, it got nuts. And we and we still got a better audience response than them. And then wow. they kicked us off the tour. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we got them back a little bit. Uh, the show that, that Michael's talking about, we played at the Yorkville Theater in, I think, uh, that was New York. New York, yeah. And um, it was a small stage. And they not only wouldn't, they wouldn't move any of the equipment. The drums are on a riser that rolls back and forth. They wanted to leave it right where it is. They wouldn't move anything. And then they said that um, you have to set up in front. So I had a nine by nine drum riser that I used. Obviously, we couldn't put it on its wheels. We set the wood up on the front of the stage, the whole, I'd say, two feet in front of the drums. Uh, I was hanging in the audience and, and Michael Diamond was sitting on road cases next to the stage, so he couldn't move around. Uh, Michael had his one spot for his keyboards. He had to play guitar standing at his keyboards. And Rick Sanford was saying he, he stood be on the side of me by my drum rise or by my drum stool. So he's either on my left or he's on my right singing. He, there was no stage for him to go. If he went to the front of my drum stage, it would be like a diving board and he'd end up in the audience. So uh, not only that, but then they tell us that when, and by the way, when you guys are done, we need you out of the dressing room as fast as possible. We have press that wants to come in and use it. So we are, needless to say, pissed. And we walk out there and gave probably one of the best performances we ever did. And the crowd loved us. And we finished the show. We got out of the dressing room and we went and watched them. They were pelted with eggs and tomatoes uh, during that show. And I remember talking to the guys after going, hey, guys, you do know that crowd had that stuff while we were playing. They didn't throw it at us. They threw it at them. Yeah. So uh, yeah. years later, after telling the story to one of our uh, I think it was Denny Vosberg, uh, who was uh, part of management with Alice Cooper. We started playing with him and we told him that story and the babies were on that tour as well. And he goes, well, guys, from from now on, the babies don't do sound checks, only you. And we thought, well, it's a little payback. We didn't really necessarily ask for it, but uh, it was kind of cool because Alice Cooper likes to set up his gear. They check everything's working, but he he traditionally doesn't do sound checks. He doesn't come out there and perform songs. And so the whole sound check time, once Alice Cooper was set up, was given to us and we could uh, play as long as we wanted. So it was kind of a payback on that. Not, again, not that we were asking for it, but, uh, you know, rock and roll has a way of uh, getting people back, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I want to tell a quick story before I forget on uh, the Gene Simmons. Yeah. We used to go to the Rainbow. And back then, at that time, was the heyday of the Rainbow. And everybody who was anybody would go to the Rainbow. And I have so many great stories from there. Uh, but one of them was uh, I, I would talk to Gene Simmons. He gave me some helpful advice on, you know, being out in public and things like that. And then eventually he was coming to our rehearsals. And when we finally got booked to do those shows with them, I think it was the first show we were playing in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And the tunnel 
was underneath the arena. So you had to walk through this long tunnel to get to the stage. And I remember, and this is one of my greatest moments, and that's why I never forget it. I'm walking towards this huge figure that's walking towards me, and it's Gene. And finally, we get up to each other, and he looks at me, and he points, and he goes, I always knew you'd make it. And at that point, it was the proudest moment of my life because it validated that we had worked hard. We were finally somewhere, and we belonged on that stage with him. And I never forgot it. I, I, I joke sometimes. It's like that old commercial you see sometimes in the retro Super Bowl commercials where the, the kid wants the jersey. Yeah. And, or hands the Coke to mean Joe green yep. and he throws him that Jersey. Yeah. It was exactly one of those moments for me. And I never forgot it. He was, uh, he was very inspirational. Uh, I liked the fact that he was a businessman and he, he was clean and sober and just all about the show. And we, one of the shows we did with them, I think was in Columbus, Ohio. And there was a problem with where the stage was. It was at a university and the height of the ceiling didn't allow them to use all their effects. And I remember thinking, okay, well, now we're going to see Kiss without all those special effects. Let's see what they do. So they went out there and killed it. They kicked butt. They were incredible. And so, um, you know, some people say, well, they're a great show because of all those special effects. No, they were, they were great. Just pure and simple. They were great even without the effects. That's like saying Pink Floyd can't play if, unless yeah. they have a laser yeah. light show, which yeah. is what? <laughs> <laughs> Floyd can't play. Oh, they can't write a song either. Uh, right. Any kind of song they fucking want. Yeah, it's kind of. Yeah. Hey, can I tell a quick rainbow story? That Oh, my uh, God, of course. Yeah, man, come on. Story of the rainbow. It was a uh, mm -hmm. time when everybody who was anybody was there. Every time I walked in, if I saw Richie Blackmore, he would say, you know, come here and sit down. And, you know, what are you drinking? And naturally it was, well, whatever he was having. But um, a lot of fun but um, one night i'm standing and i'm talking with and as a drummer you got to know that this is just big for me i'm talking to john bonham and we're talking about snare oh. drums and drum heads and recording techniques and all this stuff he's just a super nice guy telling me everything and he looks at me he goes jeff we got to go sit down and i said why he goes the show is about to begin and i look over and keith moon has just walked into the rainbow so we walked over to the corner table and sat down and I watched Keith go from one table to the other, just being hilarious. And he ended up at our table and I you know, got to hang out with the two of them. And it was just, wow. uh, oh. you know, back then it was a special time. And a lot of the people that went there were, you know, very inspirational to all of us. And I, I think that, you know, kind of helped shape some of the stuff that we ended up doing, because fortunately we were able to hang out with the, uh, you know, the who's who of the rock world. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's that's great. That's John Bonham and Keith Moon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone can even just say like, oh, yeah, I remember that time with, you know, I, you, yeah, John, I mean, John and Keith. A, yeah. You know. That would be a career highlight for me. And I don't even play drums. So imagine what it's like for Jeff being a drummer. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go. Uh, I want to get back to San Antonio a little bit. So oh, I lived there. I was born there and my dad was in the Air Force. So we went back. We were in and out of San Antonio three different times. But the last time um, was during my high school years. So it was uh, about 82 uh, into the early 90s or so. And that was the time when Joe Anthony was playing the, the living daylights out of uh, Legs Diamond. Um, off the top of my head, Fugitive, Walk Away, Out on Bail, Woman, Stage Fright, Rat Race, Underworld King, all these songs. Um, so I knew them very well. And and you guys were definitely had a stronghold. And like I said, at the top of the show, uh, your concerts were just big, massive events. 
And um, so I wanted to talk about the album. So the first two albums were on Mercury. So you were on a major label. Uh, then I guess you were dropped from Mercury and, and Firepower came out on uh, Cream. Cream. Cream Cream Records. Yes. Which I, by the way, who else was on that roster? I never even heard of that label before. Snail. Who? Snail. <laughs> Snail. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, slow to get to know him. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's a waiting, yeah. there's a short story behind Cream Records, and that was um, Al Bennett was the owner of Cream Records. He started RCA Records and ended up selling it. He was a multi multi millionaire, and you know Alvin in the Chipmunks. Yeah. That was named after Al Bennett. So this Cream Records was his little toy and his his son was going to take it over. Was his name Wayne, Jeff? Wayne. Yeah. And uh, so it was just we were happy to be there. They they had a, a decent budget, terrible producer. And Wayne was going to take over and Wayne loved the band. And two weeks before our album came out, Firepower, uh, Wayne got killed. Oh, and Al Bennett comes back from his ranch and you could tell that label was just sort of, oh. he was getting ready to fold it because he, he didn't need it. He just wanted to get out of there and get back to his ranch. So timing. Yeah. yeah was then, not in our favor. And then, and then there was a, a gap. Uh, you guys, I, I think, effectively kind of broke up after the Firepower record, uh, or at least you were kind of on hiatus, I guess, because there was a four or five year gap between Firepower and Out on Bail. Is that right? Yeah, four. Yeah. And then Out on Bail comes out on Target, I think. Is mm-hmm. the, and I, I didn't know anything about that label either, uh, except for you guys. Um, and I only know that because I lived in San Antonio. <laughs> So, but that album, you guys uh, obviously went through some lineup changes. Now Jim May is in on guitar, and Mike Christie replaces Mike Michael Diamond. Um, and that album was was big in San Antonio. It might have been, I don't know. You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I want to go out on a limb and say, out of the albums you had done up to that point, that was probably the most uh, had the best sales as an album, as an entire piece of work. Uh, well, it was probably also a little more available at the time too. But to me, that was a huge comeback. That was the album. That was the first Legs Diamond album I owned because I could go to the store and find it. It was available to me and I loved the record and it had all, you know, the songs off that album were great. Uh, so is that fair to say that Out on Bail might've been your most popular album, at least in the San Antonio market or how does it stack up with the others? I, I I don't know because we don't live in San Antonio and we never really got like sales reports from labels or anything like that. Um, so if, if if you think it was more popular there, then it may very well have been. What well, about going What about going by crowd reaction in different markets? Well, it, it got a great crowd reaction, and I will say something about Autumn Bale uh, in the Los Angeles area. I remember it was kind of refreshing that suddenly one of our top rock stations, KLOS at the time, started playing out on bail. And we hadn't had radio play in Los Angeles for quite a while. We did in the uh, first album, we had quite a bit. And then uh, it was like we disappeared out of LA, even though we were uh, considered a Los Angeles band. 
And out on bail, they started playing it again. So suddenly we were back on the airwaves here. So I think it was pretty well received uh, across across the country. Yeah, very uh, well in San Antonio. I mean, there's four songs on side one. It, all all four of those songs on side one are, are radio staples in San Antonio. Well, which is funny because uh, a lot of times I get crap for the uh, using the electric drums on it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I yeah. think there was one thing that Legs Diamond was trying to do, it, and whether it was conscious or unconscious, we were trying to make our album somewhat different all the time and try to evolve and and create something new. I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, we had read that the Beatles, for example, each album they wanted to change and, and make it somewhat better and not be one sound at all times. And we kind of used that philosophy somewhat, maybe unconsciously, but try to make each album different. And at the time, uh, you had Terry Bozio, uh, Missing Persons, using electric drums. They were very popular. And yeah. so we thought we would give it a try. It was really the producer's idea to do it. Wow. We all went along with it, thinking that maybe this will work. And uh, I was never thrilled with the sound of the drums. And I may have had my complaints over the years about them. But as you said, and I think you're right, that album did really well. And for, for example, the live shows that we still do now, where we pick material that we want to play that we think people are going to want to hear because they want to hear the older stuff, we still do at least three songs off of that album live. Yeah. So as far as an album goes, it's one of the most played live in current Lake Diamond shows. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the point I was trying to make in some roundabout way. And so here's the, here's my other question about Out on Bail. Um I couldn't help but notice that I'm holding up the album cover for those who are listening and not uh, and not watching. Uh, let me get this into view. There is a the picture of the band on the front. Four out of the five of you guys are wearing the exact same shoes. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's those, true. Those are capizios. Capizios. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, did you guys get a two for one at the shoe store? Yeah, or what, we must have. Uh, now, I wore them because as a drummer, I like the way they felt on the foot pedals because you have full feeling with your foot. So when you're and I'm I'm known as a uh, kind of a toe player, I don't hold, rest my whole foot on the foot pedal because I try to play, you know, fast or as fast as I can. And so yeah. I use my toes quite a bit. And with those shoes, you could really feel the, the pedal really well. So I went to those. Not sure why everybody else did, except they were fashionable and I thought they looked really good. I mean, I yeah. don't think Randy consciously. Rose counted and said okay hey there's four of us all wearing the same shoes i don't think we ever really noticed that yeah randy <laughs> leave it to leave it, leave it, it to a rock and rock and roll nerd who noticed that stuff randy rhodes wore those yeah um and so rod, did david lee roth so. rod, oh, stewart, sure rod, rod stewart and the scorpions <laughs> wore those it's like a, yeah um i know who legs diamond got got fashion advice from now you were in good company when it yeah, came to footwear yeah um, so we got to talk about woman, uh, that song in San Antonio, it's been, it's been called, you know, San Antonio's version of stairway to heaven. And I, and I, I, I can vouch for that. I've lived there for years and years and years. That song was always on the radio, always requested by listeners, a huge response at your, at your gigs. Every, every person singing along, just waiting for that song to happen. Let me jump in real quick. Hold that thought, Dave, please don't lose your place. I just want to say a song like woman, it's almost like this sort of, I I hated the word uh, ballad, but you know, it has this building effect, you know, it starts soft and it's broken down and then it comes in and kicks in and da, 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 da. So a ballad, just terrible word, 
that yeah, it's a it's, rock ballad. It's, no, it's, we, it's yeah, a power okay. ballad. Okay, so giant biker dudes with devil tattoos singing with double fisted, going "Wama" in the audience. <laughs> <Don't forget laughs> at the time. Yeah, and the girls yeah, are like, yeah. they, the girls like it, but these big Vikings are fucking loving this, like. <laughs> dainty little cute pretty song and i love that and for for a rock and roll songwriter to be able to write a song like that there's like a, a something amiss there's something di disengage i don't know there's something there's a disconnect there that connects with them because when you're writing something like that and you guys can prove me wrong if you want you're not thinking about big giant biker viking guys who are got two bottles of jack daniels with you know tattoos on their face singing woman yes <laughs> not correct. often not you guys often pulled it off that. you guys pulled it off but and unfortunately now that'll be etched in my mind so i'll be thinking about that a lot now. you're welcome <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, so my my point being that you know that song uh, i haven't lived in san antonio now for 25 years so i don't know if it's still on the radio and because radio formats have changed dramatically in you know the time since but that song I mean, had staying power big time and and it was kind of an unlikely song. Um, and as Jason mentioned, it went across the board. Uh, guys loved it. Girls loved it. And it was six I minutes. Call, it, it, I it call it six, crossover. It's crossover. crossover. <laughs> it was six minutes long. It's, uh, it definitely wasn't suited for radio. Nope. So and obviously when you're writing that song, you're not writing with you're not writing it with any of this in mind. So take us back to the genesis of that song and and tell listeners how it came about because it's a song that's etched in the brains of so many people and i'm sure they would love to hear how it came to be you want me to take that jeff first yeah yeah you should then you put your light on it um we had a song uh before roger joined the band that we wrote about a manager we had who had some shortcomings and it was called Stumbler. And the chorus in Stumbler was very similar to uh, Woman, the chorus in Woman. Mm -hmm. So we had the da 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 couple notes different, but almost the same. And so they took, I say they, because really Michael and Roger and Rick wrote what we call Woman. Um, but we took that part of Stumbler. And Roger had had this cool intro that he played originally on electric guitar, and he used it as the intro for his guitar solo on some of our early concerts. And then he started, he came to rehearsal and he played it on acoustic guitar. And we're going like, holy shit, that's, that sounds awesome. So we mar married that to that more hard rocky kind of chorus. And then I think Michael Diamond probably wrote all the lyrics. Yeah, Michael Diamond wrote the lyrics. He was a great lyricist. Yeah, he was he was incredible. Uh, he still is. So so that that song obviously was uh, out of many, uh, but it might be your your gold star, if you will, in San Antonio at least. Joe Anthony, obviously championing Legs Diamond, many songs, but not, women, of not course, afraid to play a six minute ballad. Woman rises to the, yeah, it was sort of the top of the heap. So kind of this is going to work backwards a little bit. So at what point were you aware that this 
uh, DJ in San Antonio was giving you airplay and helping build an audience for Legs Diamond? Well, the first time we played San Antonio was um, at the Municipal Auditorium. Bob Seeger was a headliner. We played with Bob Seeger, then Stars from New York, yeah. and then us. We were the opening band. And I think it's within four months, we go back to San Antonio and we're the headliner in the exact same venue. And we're at that point, we're starting to get a lot of radio play and had been getting radio play. And we went down to the radio station and meet everybody and realized that, wow, this is really big. These guys are really playing us, you know, a lot. And everybody seems to know us. I remember even at that time, going down to a restaurant at the Riverwalk, we would be mobbed. And um, I mean, it was a it was a unique kind of cool feeling. I mean, we probably can't say we had a lot of days like that, but when they happen, it's um, it's pretty exciting. People are standing out in the restaurant, out lining up, waiting for us to come out so they could try to get pictures and autographs. So uh, at that point, we go, wow, we're getting a lot of radio play. And of course, we're in San Antonio now, spending a few days, and we're hearing it on the radio constantly. So, and, and another quick thing, we played a show in 2004. Keep in mind that Woman was on the uh, Diamonds Are Hard Rock album in 1977. Yeah. We did a show in 2005 and going back from the venue at the Sunken Garden Theater to uh, the hotel, the limo driver that was driving us, he, he says that Woman is still getting radio play and that uh, they just played it at his, uh, or they played it at his high school reunion. And I looked at him and I said, wow, that how long ago was that? And he goes, no, that was last year. And wow. it blew me away. I, I didn't realize he was that young, but I also didn't realize that that was still popular enough that they're playing it at high school reunions so many years after the album had come out. And it, it really speaks to the power of radio. Um, I don't know if radio still has that power now that anybody can stream anything they want that's ever been written. Um, but back then it was the voice. It was the voice of the city that the radio station was in and DJ's personalities certainly helped a lot. Yes. Uh, anyway, so we're, they book us in San Angelo, San Angelo, Texas, San Angelo, Texas. And we'd never been there, but we played almost every city in Texas you can imagine. So we pull into San Angelo and uh, I think Jeff and Rick and another guy in the band, you remember, went to the radio station to do an interview. So we start talking to the guy at the club. I went to the club and he's going, oh, we're going to have we're going to have a big audience. It's sold out. I'm going sold out. Really? Wow. He goes, oh, yeah, man. You guys have the number one song on the radio. I'm going, wow, that's cool. Thinking it's stage fright or woman or whatever. And I go, oh, really? What song is it? What was the song? Help Wanted. Help From Wanted. Firepower. Wow. The song we never played live. We didn't like, we hated Until the song. then. Yeah, we I was going to say, you had to rehearse that real quick, didn't you? <laughs> we did. Real quick. <laughs> we spent all sound check relearning the song because that was one of the ones that Al Bennett owned the publishing on and wanted us to record thinking he was going to make money. Anyway, that was just a funny, it shows you the power radio because we didn't even want to play it. So we put it in the middle of the set 
the audience is just sitting there. It's sold out, but they're polite. They're sitting down and we're going, oh, here it goes. We got to play Help Wanted. And we start Help Wanted and they all get up and they come to the, right to the stage. It's like the Beatles are there. I'm going, damn, we, sh we should play this first. <laughs> or twice. It, it, was, yeah. it was almost yeah. scary. They were sitting, they stand up and they rush the stage. It must have scared the hell out of all of us because I believe we played that song at twice its speed then. So, uh, you know, everybody got excited and we played it really fast. Well, just, yeah, just do a breakdown in one of the choruses and, you know, get them to clap and just sing that the shit out of that chorus for like 30 minutes. If only we would have thought of that. It, oh, at wow. that town, when we did a in-store interview where we uh, sign autographs and they have the albums and all that, they had this pyramid that was all the Legs Diamond, you know, fake covers on it to uh, line the pyramid. And at one point where they have these tables up that we're behind and we're signing autographs, the, and I'm, I'm not making this up, the girls rushed us and broke through. And I literally climbed to the top of that pyramid trying to get away and they're ripping my hair out. And at that point, they had to get us all to the back of the store and figure out how they were going to transport us out of there because the crowd had gone crazy. Again, those times don't happen all the time, but when they happen, little scary but really exciting but yeah they were ripping my hair out yeah so this is in let me get this trade this is in san, san angelo texas yeah wow for a, wow. For a song that you, for a song that was like a throwaway like yeah. filler yeah so you you uh confirms confirms my belief that san angelo is just fucking weird <laughs> yeah yeah well it is a rock town i mean they have it they definitely a have a rock town. audience yeah. for sure um you mentioned, uh, Michael mentioned uh, a point that I think we need to reiterate a little bit, and that is uh, because Joe Anthony is so central to the Legs Diamond story. Um, but you're you're right. There was a time when uh, DJs were uh, given free reign to sort of champion their favorite band, bands, you know, bring in their own personal record collection and turn you on to stuff that they liked that you might not have heard of. Uh, and, you know, living in San Antonio like I did, I not only heard Legs Diamond because of Joe Anthony, but I heard Riot, Stars, Moxie, Mahogany Rush, Killer Dwarves. I mean, for every Iron Maiden, Saxon, and Judas Priest and Def Leppard that he championed, there was this whole other level of bands that never quite got that international stardom, but they're etched in my brain. And if you're one of those bands like you are, uh, that's a really, you're, you're, you're in pretty good company. You know, I, I, I think that's really cool. And it comes down to a personality. It was a Joe Anthony who, who made you, who put you guys, you know, put your name on the map, yeah, you know, without a doubt, obviously yeah, you guys have the talent, but it took somebody like that with that, with that voice, that broadcast ability to, to put it out there for the masses. I, I want to interrupt and go back to San Angelo. Uh, you know, someone's there's a DJ. And this goes with what Michael said. There's a DJ in San Angelo that decided that he loved that song. He or she loved that song so mm -hmm. very, very, very much. They had to play it. They had to play it. I mean, I'm guessing there wasn't a deal made on the golf course with some, you know, an envelope, you know, handed under the seat on the golf cart. I think, you know, payola or whatever you want to call it. I think someone decided they they loved that song and that song spoke to them yeah more than any other song on the record so they played it because your label wouldn't put that wasn't a single obviously right 
But so more importantly, some, but more importantly, that DJ had, actually it was. Had, they did release "Help Wanted" as a single. They did. Oh, um, okay. Uh, you lost that love and feeling was a single, and uh, I think more than meets the eye is on the B side of that. Ah, okay. And then "Help Wanted" was a single, and I'm not Tragedy. sure what the B side of that. Tragedy. 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 Yeah. So those yeah. are forty fives. Yeah. yeah, those yeah. are forty fives. Yeah. So like back 45. back to what I was saying. The the love the DJ had for for the song is what created this crazy hoopla with Jeff losing, literally losing hair follicles yeah, and yeah. maybe articles of clothing. I don't know. And, and then having a shutdown to a rock and roll riot in San Angelo, Texas makes me have respect for San Angelo, but who knew that, that any of that um, chain of events, whatever happened? I mean, you guys were shocked more than anyone else. But it leans back to, once again, credit to Michael for saying the power of radio is kind of like this phrase now that makes others, because of the streaming and the download and the the deface and the devalue of rock and roll music, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, is is this sort of ritual that it can't happen anymore. And no. I don't really want to dig a hole and have us jump in and you know, have a hot well, tub party I, and cry about this, but it's true. And it's I think, just the, I think more important than the, than, than the DJ's love of a particular song, more important than that was the freedom to play it right. today. A DJ, yeah. first of all, there's not even a human being sitting at the console no. anymore. And if there is, they might as well have a gun to their head being told to play these, ten, these same 10 songs over and over. You're not going to squeeze in your favorite legs diamond song on radio today. No, they might, there might be some shows that at three o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, they I'm might let the you. DJ play two songs or one. Yeah. And nobody's nobody's awake then. But it it speaks to not only the power of radio, but the DJ had to have a personality that the listener um was drawn in by and Joe Anthony became known as the Godfather that's so right. of rock and roll. So that's, that's huge. Yeah. I want to add, I want to yeah. add to that there, you know, in, in, uh, and I'll do respect and give a little love to satellite radio and current times and where we are right now. Mm-hmm. True. Um, not that I know anything about current times cause I don't cause I'm don't a either. dinosaur like most of us in the room here. Take that with a cause a compliment, please. Now, I feel like Sirius and whatever they Ozzy's Boneyard and you know Hair Nation and uh, D Snyder has House of Hair and and Ozzy's Boneyard in particular. I should just say I don't listen to satellite radio, but they send me checks. So am I going to get mad that you know I get a fish sandwich and a tank of gas? Hell to the no. So. There, it's back to you guys. The personality that you're talking about, like Joe Anthony, there are personalities that have their own shows. I don't know how long these shows are. You know, I don't know how long. Alice Cooper has a show. Dee Snyder has a show. These also, these stand-up comics have shows. These personalities that send them reels, I guess, get Luke Carl, who is a... A, a jock on Ozzy's Boneyard, if I'm not mistaken. I, I'm pretty sure he is one of the personalities on there. There, Jim Florentine has a show, who's a stand-up comic actor uh, buddy of ours. 
who was on that metal show on VH1 with Don Jameson and and Eddie Trunk and da da da. These per these guys are DJs. These guys are personalities. They're stand up comics. Yeah. They're well, they're, they they're, are what Joe Anthony created just by, without even really trying. It was just through rock and roll radio that he became the godfather. So I think mm -hmm. that there is something to what satellite radio is trying to convey with the power of radio. It's like, oh, Luke Carl's coming on. So they, you know, there are fans that listen to yeah. his show because these personalities and this doesn't make or break the conversation. They do get to pick a playlist. It may or may not be meet, have to meet some kind of approval rating with the with with the bosses there. But I don't think so. They pick. I mean. Yeah, I'm not selling it. I'm not selling a shit ton of records, and I mean, my bands are fairly underground, but they play like my band Broken Teeth. They play that shit. I and love like, Broken Teeth. Thank yeah. you. But they see what I mean. It's like they're choosing to play that. I'm not begging anyone to play that. I don't have the money to grease that wheel. Well, you're, I think we right. still have uh, uh, Tom T Bone from uh, Kiss Radio has his own yes. show still. Jepke, uh, yeah. Not sure uh, the time slot he has. But that I believe is still in San Antonio, and I know he still plays us, and he's uh, he's a great uh, DJ. So I'm sure he's playing a lot of great bands. Yeah, yeah. 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 Jason brings up a valid point. I do think with the advent of whatever you call that cable radio or subscription services or whatever, there there is a cable radio. Did I just say cable radio? <laughs> Well, that's what it is. I don't know about whatever. Look, whatever. Look, it's fine. I, I still have to listen to that in your yeah, car. The cable's never long enough. That goes to the dine. You know, that goes to you know. I still have vinyl records. So, um, uh, but the point being that I think they there is a little more freedom today uh, with the advent of some of these paid uh, or whatever you call them. It's not terrestrial radio. Um, people out there listening know what I'm talking about, but the Sirius XM and the hair nation, yeah. all that stuff. Uh, as Jason said, you get a personality on there. There probably is a little more freedom to play some things that they, that they personally like more so than just following a playlist. Which is, I, I which think is Howard, good. Which is good. good. Yeah. 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 I think Howard Stone, Howard Stern. Yeah. These air things are driving me nuts. Okay. Uh, might've been the first nationwide DJ that people actually tuned in to listen to because he got some kind of deal with all the other stations where they just played him but before that you got you sort of fell in love with the personalities that lived in your town right you know yeah. like in la there was a guy named jim ladd you know and there are there are others and and they're they're your special people they're that's what's hot yeah. in your area you know and yeah. and if they play it it's something you really should consider and maybe right. go go buy it. It um, was much it was much more regional at that time, which yeah. is why the San Antonio became known as the heavy metal capital of the world is because Lou Roney and Joe uh, Anthony mm -hmm. are playing metal bands. And you go to Chicago and it's going to be known as some other type of city and you go to, you know, um, New York or L.A. or phoenix arizona and they're going to have their own little flavor back when the djs actually kind of molded the playlist so to speak which is exactly why san antonio became known as such a hard rock heavy metal mecca yeah. so tell us about the departure of rick sanford because it, rick is um obviously very obviously a defining uh part of the legs diamond sound very distinctive voice very good singer 
um, it had to be pretty daunting to know that for whatever reason he's leaving the band. So why did he leave? And then what were your thoughts about trying to replace him? You want to go, Jeff? Well, we um, were getting ready to go play in Europe. Uh, I think this was around 2005. And um, we were all trying to get back together and get rehearsals going. And so I called Rick Sanford. And uh, he was always the first choice. Obviously, we wanted to get the, you know, the band back together. And it was his decision that uh, he felt at that time that he wasn't able to give 100% of his voice to rehearsals, to do another album, and do a tour. And I respect him immensely for his decision because uh, he, he, had a, he has a fantastic voice. And it's, there's no question that those songs, for example, Woman, would not be that song if it wasn't for his great vocals. Exactly. So we wanted to have him, but he decided that he could no longer do it. And so at that point, we were faced with the fact that, well, the rest of us want to continue playing. And we're still writing songs and we want to play. So what do we do? And that's when we collectively put it together that we would have no choice but to find another singer so we could further the journey. And I know that there's some people that will uh, make comments about, uh, well, we want Rick Sanford if we're going to watch Legs Diamond. Well, you have to think about how many other bands have had to do the exact same thing. Uh, Queen, for example. I mean, who thought you'd be able to replace Freddie Mercury, mm-hmm. one of the most iconic singers in the world? Uh, ACDC, Bon Scott, they had to replace him. He was, as I agreed with you in the early part of the show, one of my favorite bands and singers at that time. Uh, Journey, uh, Steve Perry quits the band, yet they replace him. Uh, Foreigner, you you can go on and on and on with bands that at the time had iconic singers Mm -hmm. who were considered to be the premier singers at that time. And faced with a decision as we either quit or we get a replacement and we continue and we still play the material and the songs that people love. And so it was it was not a, you know, a, a, a fun decision to make, but we were put in that position that we had no choice. We had to move on. And uh, that's where I'm going to let the Michael Prince uh, talk more about uh, how we discovered, um, in this case, John Levesque. Mm. Let me turn my mic. Well, John, I'll, I'll get him uh, up to speed on this. We played San Antonio and it was the uh, Legends of, of Rock tour. And uh, Montrose was the band that played just before us. And uh, John Levesque was the singer at that time. So after that show, we had filmed part of that. We were looking at possibly doing a DVD and we were looking at some of the footage. Well, we had footage of Montrose and John Levesque. So uh, we already knew what he sounded like and how he performed. So he he was a front runner right right away. But I'm going to let Michael take over on this because, you know, getting the right singer has to has to blend with his his songwriting. And um, he's a major player on those decisions. Yeah. Michael, let's have it. Um, I, I was going to add just a few things. One, uh, at that time, Rick was living in San Antonio and he still is. So it became almost impossible um, to have him come here for two weeks or a month, rehearse, um, maybe learn some new songs if we were going to play any. And he had a job, uh, a normal job like many of us do when we're not um, being famous on stage. and. Uh, he didn't want to leave that that job. The, the show we did before that one with um, 
uh, with Montrose. I think Rick was already in Texas then. He was and, living there then at that time. Yes. And, and so as a band, out of what we were going to make, we had to fly him here, put him in a hotel, rent him a car. And he did a good job. He did a really good job. But it was really Rick's decision in 2005. We've even called him about the new album we're working on saying, hey, do you want to sing one song? We'll, we'll send the track to you. And Jeff's talked to him. He said, no. He goes, I, I really can't sing anymore. Hmm. And he wow. can sing, but he means those high notes that we would hope we could have. Yeah. Well, and John, definitely... John Levesque, uh, we videotaped that show. We have it all multi-tracked, four cameras. We've never released it. And, and what we noticed, because we knew we knew Rick was probably not going to do any more shows. We're, we had about one and a half songs of Montrose with John. And Jeff was right here. And we're looking at it going like, man, would we like to have a singer like that? Because he was hitting all the high notes. And so we put out a, I think Roger put out a little, not a, ad but the word we're looking for singer and john levick called the next day and we're going that's the that's the guy you know yeah. so nice guy then he he moved to boston well so that sort of dovetails nicely into the next question or the obvious question i guess is what's the current status of legs diamond in terms of uh, possibly a new album or uh, some tour dates. I know San Antonio, you had something on the books for San Antonio and then COVID knocked that uh, off the map. Yeah, about the, three times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's start with new music. Uh, what's on the horizon? A new album. And it's really my fault that it, it hasn't been done already. Um, everybody's ready. I, I just really wanted to get a couple more likes diamond songs, like a woman, like a rock and roll man, just some, not just a short, you know, guitar rock and roll song, but something a little bit more epic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when, is there any timeline for this? When San Antonio wants to know, <laughs> I'm San Antonio's uh, messenger today. So asking for a friend. Yeah. I'm asking for <laughs> a few million of my closest friends in San Antonio. The time timeline is really before we play our next show. So we, we don't know it when it's going to be, but we know if we have an album out, we can probably do four or five shows in Texas. Um, we're on, um, rock candy records out of the UK. Uh, they would like to bring us there. Fun and, label. Yeah. Uh, Derek Oliver runs that thing. He's been a friend of mine. What's Jeff holding up? Since Let's the talk 70s. About what Jeff's holding up real quick. They, they've, re they've released all our first six albums. Yeah. Maybe you album. Oh my and, God. And since my, I'm sitting in Michael's studio, is one, is one I have some of them. <laughs> oh wow! So so and and I wanted I'll to pay for the postage. Out. My address is. No. <laughs> I wanted to point out to people listening and uh, that that your albums are very much still available. Correct on on your website. Leg is it legsdiamond.com? Is that is that the site? Yeah, yeah. but but they're awesome. also available on Amazon. In fact, it's easier 
just to go to Amazon or your local record store and request it. Because if you order it on our website, then I, I have to take it to the post office. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I I'll do it. it. I get it. I'm that guy so, as well, Michael. So. Yeah, yeah, Jason does the I same all job about for that. Now, what he just said is proof that we're not into this for the money. We're into it for just trying to continue the legacy of Legs Diamond and to keep that going. Yeah. Because that right there was a was a good advertisement for we don't care if we make any money. We want you to just, you know, get it. Yeah. And I just wanted people to know that the music is still available. People may think that some of this stuff is out of print, but it is it is still very much available. And you made the point, Michael, that you're kind of waiting to get an album out to do a tour. But uh, I I think I'm going to speak for all of Texas when I say that you'd be welcome back to Texas without any new material at all. And you'd still pull big crowds. So um, I'm encouraged and happy to know that the band is still active and you are working on new material. But you're one of those bands that, I mean, you could come back tomorrow and sell out Sunken Garden Theater in San Antonio. And it might as well be 1986 all over again. So, right. And you, may, and you might you. you might get shot. Very you might kind. get shot if you if you play the whole new record and like nothing no. else. We're, yeah. No, we wouldn't do that. No, yeah. I, know, I, know, I know that. We're probably not going to play anything from the last three albums, including a new one, if we put it out. People don't. I'm a fan of Deep Purple, like Jeff is. So when I go see them, what do I want to see? I want to see the songs off the first maybe four or five albums. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff wants to hear it, all of it. Yeah, yeah, I actually want to hear the new stuff just because I buy every one of their albums as they come out, and I know every one of their songs because I'm a major geek fan of Deep Purple. But Love it. No, we understand. Now, you and Lars Ulrich. Say, I'm sorry. You- when we talk about doing another album, um, there's something to the fact that, and we're very proud of this, that there's been connoisseurs, connoisseur magazines that have listed some of our albums. And we know that there's people out there that do want to hear where we've ended up and where we are now. And the transition of how the band is, uh, you know, migrated through the years and our songwriting. So we do want to do that, but we do know that when we play live, primarily they do want to hear the songs that they grew up listening to. And so we may put in a new song, but, maybe one, but we would uh, only do that. And probably not. We'd probably just play the songs that we think that uh, were the top ones that they want to hear. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's I'm, a, what's a, what's a common opening number when you guys play live? What's one that seems to rise? We've had a, we've had a few. I think lately we've been enjoying starting off with Underworld King. Yeah. Oh, mm. cool. Yeah. Well, what's a, back in the day, maybe, what was one that you, that you usually, that you rose to the top as a great opener? Let's say you're supporting, like when you're supporting, uh, you know, UFO or KISS or something, Ted Dio. Nugent, on the Ted Nugent tour, what well, were you opening with? Do you recall? We, we, a lot of times what we would do, because there's a transition from Michael playing guitar or playing keyboards. So sometimes we would start with two all guitar songs. And so maybe we would start with Satin Peacock or, wow. or even Stage Fright. And then he would switch to keyboard. So there'd be a limited amount of time in between, you know, the, the set, you know, the changes in instruments. Or we would start with the keyboard songs and do two of those before we went to guitar. And that's where, you know, songs that have a, you know, a real catchy and infectious beginning and are up tempo like Underworld King would come in. But I know we've used back in the day, we'd start with Satin Peacock as well. Wow. And. After Adam Bale came out, I would say almost 
from 84 through the 90s, we'd start with out on bail. Yeah. Because that was sort of like our, hey, we're back. We're we're yeah. out on bail. We finally got out of jail. Yeah. yeah. And it's a kick-ass song. Yeah, I it mean, is great. Nothing will get you out your song. fist pumping like that song. That's a great opening. I have some, I have some very, very sort of like non sequitur songs that are just stupid, really nerdy questions. Is that okay if I yeah. freak out on you guys for a minute? Uh, stage fright is is that, or even satin peacock? But are those are those uh the guitar tones on those old records uh on those songs on the first record in particular? Are those just Les Pauls through Marshalls? Or are they just straight Gibson Marshall? Because mm-hmm. that's what it sounds like, and it's this. That's like this. Oh, that's like this sort of like thing that I. Little did I know in my wee brain uh, would look for. Yeah, you know, when you hear Ace, when you hear Ace Freely start a song, when you hear Jimmy Page start a song, you want it to be this certain thing. You guys had uh, here, Pat Travers, same shit, mm-hmm. same shit. UFO, yeah. same shit. The beginning of Natural Thing, God, it makes me think of stage fright. It makes me want to go put, put on Legs Diamond because of this Gibson Marshall kind yeah. of thing that I that I'm sort of I'm not describing it. I'm just going, what's the deal, yo? That's Les Paul through Marshall. I still have yeah. the two same Les Pauls I bought in the seventies, and it's always been a Marshall. And I'm a rhythm guitar player, so no no pedals. No, that's that's just a waste. Malcolm Young. Yeah. Yeah. Rhythm. Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's a, let me give you two two words for you, Malcolm and Young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. N- next nerd nerd out. Okay, you ready? Okay. I know this is not true. I it's there was a rumor. I deny it. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. So does David Lee Roth, apparently. But uh so being from Corpus Christi, there were rumors growing up, and then I, I still remember them like they were yesterday, that when you turn over the debut record you guys standing in the sunshine with there might be a palm tree i don't recall if there's a palm tree sticking out there is and that the, picture wow, was taken man, in, i'm good i remember that shit. that picture was taken in the parking lot of capitol records okay okay that's, that's the, the backdrop that diffuses the the rumor the rumor that i were facing I, a mirror i was wow okay that the i was told a mirror that we're looking into with the palm trees behind it that's the backdrop of the uh, Capitol Records parking lot. Being from Corpus Christi, there were a, a there was a, a small number us that uh, of us that a few of us actually believed the rumor that that photo was taken down in Corpus Christi. We wanted it that road. Oh, yeah. that's right. So it was done in Corpus true. Christi. Yeah, <laughs> on the bayfront, right across yeah. the street from Corpus oh, yeah. Christi Coliseum. Those that's, are the palm trees. That's yeah. that's called wishful thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think they flew the palm trees in from Corpus Christi <laughs> for that parking lot. It was the photographer's idea to put a mirror on a chair, and it was the photographer's dog that was just kind of yeah. hanging out in the and, picture. And he tried to move the dog, and we said, "No, leave the dog. It, it gives us one more, you know, thing to look at." It. We thought it was sure. just kind of cool. But when you, in today's world. 
if you look at that album cover, that picture would you just do it in Photoshop. It would just be, that's a picture from the band. Here's a shot I took in a parking lot of a building. I'm just going to, you know, overlay it. But no, it was a really cool idea. Well, as for art's sake, when you think about, uh, you know, someone produced that, that photograph, someone, yeah. someone that literally, this isn't the right word, choreographed that photograph. Yeah, yeah. They right. said, let's do this and I'm going to do this. Okay. And then you, you, you shoot a few roles and obviously you, you guys have to go or the record label art department is picking that. Um, I, I, I think that it's a great, uh, uh, introduction to, to Legs Diamond when you think about, you know, when you listen to the songs and you turn the record over and you go, oh, well, that this is making too much sense. Um, anyway, that's I'm done with Jason's nerd corner today <laughs> here on Talk Louder podcast. I wanted to I wanted to touch on one more thing and then and then we'll let the guys go. But uh, I, I, uh, Michael, um, I don't think we can have you uh, in the room without uh, noting some of your accomplishments beyond Legs Diamond. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I, I think you've worked on records by you've, you've had some hand in working with Michael Jackson. I want to say Beyonce. I feel like I was interviewing you one time when you were actually working on a Michael Jackson record. It was a phone interview and you were in California. And I want to say you were looking out your window as we were on the phone having this conversation. And there was one of those God awful forest fires that you guys have mm -hmm. uh, 10 times a month. And um uh, is that right? Where, is, does this ring any bells? Sure. Yeah. I yeah. worked for Michael for 15 years. What did you do wow. exactly? I did uh, all the tour programming starting in 95 and then became like the head tech and then became the playback tech, which we don't talk about because nobody uses playback. Jason, you know what playback is? <laughs> I I actually uh, I don't, but I, just I, I tapes? do. I do. It's just tapes. Yeah, tapes. Kinda. Back, back yeah. in the tracks. It's basically you know the the best way to explain it to uh, a layman is sometimes an album has a choir on it, and you want that choir when you play the song live. So right. you have a little tape machine. Sure. The drummers listen to a click, so the yeah. choir comes in at the right time but that's right. really that's all it is it's supplementing it's trying to sound like your record the, which, the moral the moral of the story is whatever tracks you have you have to have a great drummer you do you do and if, the funny thing is since i did all that for michael and other artists don henley uh i always ask the band before we you know start doing live shows i go do you want me to set up a little thing and pull the backgrounds off the record and pull an extra guitar part. I go, nah. Uh, and I'm, wow. I, we've always been a hundred percent live. I'd rather yeah. keep it that way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's good, something about the organic. You know. If you, if you've done about 10 in a row and you're a little shot and you're tired cause you're on a dartboard tour and you've been driving all day and you just your shower sucked or, or because there's hadn't been one. And you have to, you know, oh, shit, we're on in five minutes kind of a thing. And you're a little ragged. And you sound like you feel you. Mm -hmm. but the, the fans are still happy that you're there playing your songs. The songs don't sing themselves, even if you're choking a little bit. No, but I 
I remember a time when Robert Plant stopped singing his highest notes. And I would I wasn't at the concert, but people would talk to me and go, man, he didn't. He's singing different notes. He's not hitting all his high notes. And I'm going like, yeah, he's a human being. Yeah. 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 He hit those high notes in 1969. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Rush. Rush didn't break up when Getty sang low. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, so you you worked with Michael in this sort of capacity. So it's it's more of a touring capacity where you're out helping produce the live show. Is that the deal? Live shows, but then I also I also worked on all the albums starting in '95, and so it became more of a full time thing. I mean, and I wow. I had portable studios, sort of like w- what you see behind me, but more portable and. If he said, hey, I want to record at the ranch, we'd send a truck up there and I get it all ready. Put put a mic there and all this fancy stuff that we use in the studios. Did in hotels all over the world. Wow. And of course, in, in real studios. And he was pretty well known for kind of being in the background. And did you have any interaction with him at all during this time as, as being part of his one of his creative partners or not? All the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you did. Okay. He he called me on the phone out of the Are blue. Are we still talking about Michael Jackson right now? Yeah. 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 Okay. I just had to like pinch myself because yeah. I'm a huge fan. No, we was, didn't beat it. He's, we're still talking about him. I was sitting right here in the studio and he calls yeah. me and we talked on the phone for an hour and a half. Wow. About nothing in particular. Yeah. But, you know, he was cool. One time he, he called me, I was taking my daughter and her friend to school. And so the phone rings in the car and it's a speakerphone thing. So I answer it. And so we talk and he wants me to start coming up to the ranch and uh, showing him how to play keyboards. I go, all right, when do you want to start? And he goes, next week. Oh, okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. Hand me the phone. And Allie's friend, and she's still friends with her. And uh, Allie's friend goes, was that Michael Jackson? I go, yeah. And I thought to myself, that was pretty cool. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. He, absolutely. he was amazing. He was amazing. That's that's awesome. I Michael's to- being modest right now because he was working with Michael Jackson. He's actually worked with a lot of other big names at this point now. Yeah. So Jeff, give us some of the names if Michael's too modest. Yeah, no, talk, talk for Michael. It's, it's on him. He's got to say this, but he's always been a very modest person. He's extremely talented, and there's a reason why he was, you know, working at that level. I'll say one thing. When we first started off, uh, early Legs Diamond, uh, Michael was in a different situation than Michael Diamond and I, where we had to still work at Turner's Liquors to, you know, pay our rent. Michael was in a little bit different and better situation. Um, He didn't sit around. I was living with my parents. Well, he was also going back to college and taking engineering classes. That's true. And so when someone has an opportunity where they can either sit around and do nothing and just wait for something to happen, he was one of these guys that went back to college and took engineering classes and learned how to produce. I know because we actually did one song that he had to write, arrange, perform at the college, and we did. Um, And that was a a blast. But he was always learning and doing stuff. So it... it, um, it stand a reason that we'd eventually get gigs working in that capacity with people like Michael Jackson. Yeah. 
Well, that, that, I think that's just incredible. And I wanted listeners and viewers to be aware of, uh, uh, you know, besides your career with Legs Diamond, and that alone would, uh, would be worthy of recognition. But you've also done some pretty high level stuff with some major pop stars on a just astronomical level. So, so, so I'm going to throw uh, a rippled uh, uh, t- uh, typhoon into the middle of this, a big wave. Jeff Poole, I just saw a picture of you hanging out with DJ Will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like a day uh, yesterday or the day before? It's only a couple of days ago. I think I got my hair tied back in a hat. Yeah. Wear, uh, like a JBL hat. Yeah, are you are you working? You're you're at a gig doing doing something and, and No, DJ I actually Will- that is my job is I, I actually work for JBL. Wow. It, that's huge. It, it's a unique situation because it's the only place where somebody like me, we have at the facility in Northridge, we have what we call the experience center. Uh, people come in and do commercials there. They do uh, live videos. And um, I have a set of drums that I've set up on the stage and I'm allowed to go in there and play drums anytime I want. I have full range of Harmon <laughs> and JBL as the uh, resident musician and so I'm involved with all the different shows they do. So when people come in, like uh, um, uh, Achilles Priester, for example, a Brazilian drummer that's just off the charts, he, uh, he uh, auditioned for Dream Theater. We became okay. really good friends with him coming in there. We did a Make Music Day where he, I had him come in and play on my drums, and the two of us were fooling around together. Um, there's um, all kinds of cool people that come in. He came to pick up some speakers that we were going to give to the Rainbow, And I'd already helped him out. And he goes, he had a friend of mine. He goes, Jeff doesn't know about this. And he handed him his phone and said, could you take a picture? And then he pulls a diamond as a hard rock album out and he holds it up and we're taking a picture. And I went, and then he proceeds to tell this guy uh, like a a brief history of, of how many years I've played and what I've done. And I'm like, yep. Oh, this, this is kind of cool. So that is the Mr. Working a job. It's, that is it, the Mr. William suck. Howell really that cool. I know. That is the William Howell that I know. He yeah, is he's awesome. Historic, he really yeah, is. he is awesome. Yeah. And I've known him forever and ever and ever. He was a fan of my band Watchtower from the the early 80s, uh, you know, pre-Dangerous Toys. I, and I remember him when he worked for Metal Blade Records. Uh, then then he went to Capitol. And now he's just known as DJ Will. But he's like this walking, as you already know, he's he's this his, this historian. Uh, I, I think that he knew my wife before I knew my wife kind of thing. He's the, he, he's like, he's, he's really this, um, everybody's buddy kind of thing too. You know, he knows everybody. He's, he loves rock and roll. He love, he's obsessed with music and thank God. Well, he's working at the perfect place. He's a DJ at the rainbow. Yes. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. He, he was awesome. That's his heaven. No interview would be complete without mentioning another mutual friend, Harold Harris, and his lovely wife, Teresa. Yes, yes. which is where yeah. we met in person. Yeah. That's yeah. one of their anniversaries. Correct. Yeah. Correct. We, I, uh, we have him to thank for hooking up this show today. Uh, Harold, Harold was nice enough to give me Michael's phone number and uh, I reached out to Michael and let's, here we are. Let's, let's work, let's work that, that up a little bit more. So if I'm, I'm going to, this is a half guessing half may be true. Harold was stationed 
in the service in San Antonio at one of the bases there. And there's a lot of bases there. Colleen. Is true? Colleen, Texas. Oh, in Colleen. Okay, that's right out. That's closer to where we all are. So, yeah. Um, there's and, an army base right next to Colleen. I don't know Fort, what it yeah. is. Fort Hood. Fort Hood. Fort Hood. Fort Hood. I think so, it's the biggest one in the country. Yeah, so he uh, was a huge fan. There, there used to be... Uh, I forget the name of the Renaissance Records, I'm guessing. There was a record store there. He was a rock and roll fan. I'm just sort of building the story of Harold Harris that I seem to recall. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he, did he, how did he start to to follow you or to become friendly with Legs Diamond? Well, one of the local uh, bars we played, clubs, was the Crazy Horse Saloon in Colleen, Texas. I've heard of that, of course. And Harold was there at the very first show. And I don't remember this because <clears throat> as a keyboard player, I'm very busy. And, uh, but Harold, Harold bought like, I think shots or beers for the whole band. Sounds like Harold. I don't think, yep. I don't think they ever made it to me. Probably didn't make it to Jeff either. They probably got to Rick. Yeah. <laughs> Stop, Rick. <laughs> he's out front most of the time, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was right there. But yeah, I mean, Harold's been a friend, and then we found out he was he could do T-shirts. So for years, we would just call him. He'd meet us at our first gig and give us. Well, sometimes he'd ship them out here, but so he he was like a friend, a T-shirt guy. Last time. In what, 2018, Jeff and I, the next day, went and had, like, the world's best barbecue. Unbelievable. And I saw him last summer, this past summer, and I'll be there for three weeks in January in Austin. Um, So we're going to hang out a lot. Uh, Are you going to be in town working? No. Hopefully not, right? No. Not working. No, not working. Okay. (laughs) I'll have my laptop and a little keyboard with me if I get some time for an idea, but we're, we're having grandchild number two in Leander. Oh, oh okay. Congratulations. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, congrats. Well, yeah, we, we, uh, Harold is a, is a friend of mine and Jason's and, uh, we, we knew that he was friends with you guys. And I guess it really was only a matter of time until we extended the invitation. We're just so glad that you accepted uh, we appreciate you being on the podcast today. Uh, again, I'm going to speak for all of San Antonio when I uh, <laughs> thank you for all the great music over the years, all the great concerts over the years. And with that, the memories in the concerts, or I'm sorry, with the songs and the concerts come all the memories. I don't know that there's anybody that grew up in San Antonio during the late say, uh, 70s through the 80s that doesn't have Legs Diamond songs etched in their brain as part of the soundtrack to some really good times. So. Thank you guys for all that. Can I can I have one other shout out? When you mentioned Harold, um, we have a person, a great friend, John Watson in mm-hmm. England, who has been putting together compiling the Legs Diamond saga. It's uh, about five thousand pages long. I know that Harold has a copy of it. Yes. And um, not sure if he's printed it out, but I know you could read it if you're visiting him. You can see it. He can pull it up on his computer, and it has facts in there that date from the very beginning and. And stuff that, and I have a pretty good memory that I, I've forgotten about. And uh, he'll have like uh, show bills of shows that I've never seen before. 
So yeah. uh, Harold has a copy of that. But John Watson in England has put together an incredible life's history of uh, Lakes Diamond. Wow. 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 Well, well, will that be available to the public at some point? The dogs are out. It's, it's uh, what he has available right now, I believe, is available and limited. But uh, he's not quite finished. He's on... I think he said he's on his last chapter and it, it should be about five. I think he's waiting for our next album yeah, and then he's going to wrap it up and that'll be the book. So. We want to call it our final album. It'll be our final tour. And that's why we're hoping to play more places in America that we've played before and do some dates in the UK and Germany. Without an album, I think we're pretty much just going to be playing a few cities in Texas. Mm. Well, we'll, we'll you're we, welcome. Texas will be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't you're know about the rest here. of the world, but oh. yeah, Texas will be happy to hear. And, that. and we're hoping to get that album out while we're all still 29. Yeah. We want to get it in before we hit the big so three. Oh, that gives yeah. you another five years then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a little time. Thank you. Yuri. And, and Harold is one of the people that says, dude, you guys don't need to do another record. They want to hear all the old stuff. I go, yeah, I, yeah. we know. We yeah, but that. you're a musician. You're a musician and you're creative and you want to, you know, do your thing. So we still have more stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you almost feel like you have to. If you write songs, it's kind of what you do. And if you don't, you're just kind of doing this thing. I mean, I yeah. had a really bad attitude about it for years about, well, they're just waiting for those two very marginal hits so they can relieve the babysitter and go home. Hey, by the way, wasn't Dangerous Toys supposed to be on? One of those uh, San Antonio, shows in San Antonio that San, got yeah. postponed because with, of COVID. With yeah. you guys and Frank Marino and stars and everybody. Yeah. yeah. yeah we I was really looking that. forward to Frank Marino. I, I fortunately got to work with him in the mid 80s on, a, on another project that was on. He's a super nice guy. Yeah. So I was really sad to hear that he had a decline because of possible health reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was an incredible. That was that was turning into Riot, I believe, was on that. Uh, Riot was well. on that one as well. Yes. Uh, it started off with Crocus on the bill as, as yeah. well. That that yeah. that show, the lineup changed like three yeah. different times. Yeah. Um, Angel. Angel Angel was on the last lineup, Angel. Angel. and they got Sebastian Bach to uh, replace uh, Frank Marino, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Elita Ford was supposed to be on that on bill, right. and. Jeez. Uh, I want to say yeah. um, uh, Moxie was on it. Moxie. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was a, it was a, San and Antonio. I think stars. Oh no. Yeah. Stars was Mo on one of them. Moxie's, they weren't going to be on the last lineup. Moxie stars, riot, Frank Marino, legs, diamond riot. Sebastian Bach. Sebastian Bach was ended up. Gonna uh, he was on the last version yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. Cro Crocus uh, yeah. originally. They were on the first version. And that oh. tells you right there. You can, if if you're playing a show with four other bands, you're not going to be able to play any new songs. And if anything, no. I think our our set time was a hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah, ours was yeah. like uh, twenty five or thirty Jeez. minutes. Yeah, and we were we were going on at noon. So, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was be like, wow, Jason's going to go on in his pajamas. Not even going to get to see Legs Diamond because <laughs> I'm going to be so tired and need of a nap by the time they play. <laughs> no, we we play after nap time. It's in our contract. Yeah, yeah. that's good. And the writer. That's mm -hmm. good. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, Sixteen-year-old me can't believe that I'm having a conversation with two <laughs> of the founding members of Legs Diamond and. Uh, Again, as I said earlier, thanks so much for all the great music and the memories and the concerts. And hopefully 
uh, COVID gets behind us and maybe mm-hmm. we can get Legs, Diamond, and Dangerous Toys back on a bill again at Sunken Gardens and I can go relive my uh, childhood memories again. Well, yes, please. Should That'd we play incredible. with Dangerous Toys or Broken, Broken Teeth? teeth? Broken teeth. Well, you know, well, that's 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 your choice, Jason. I meet people. Yeah. Well, it's the promoter's choice. I yeah. feel like uh, I feel like Lane Arnold can, you know, thinks he can sell maybe sell more tickets because of recognition of dangerous uh, ways. Mm, yeah. But you know, I I'm I'm happy that uh, to walk around and go, yeah, you know, broken teeth. Michael Prince is a fan, <laughs> big fan. <laughs> right, man. Yeah. I think. I think we could have dangerous toys and broken teeth. Well, then I'm going to definitely need that nap then. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe two. Yeah. It takes a lot out out of me doing that shit. And we'll we'll do a short Michael Jackson segment in our show. There you go. Intermission or something. Yeah. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. We appreciate your time. And uh, again, thanks for all the great music over the years. And we'll look for that new record and hopefully see you in Texas uh, sometime soon, as soon as COVID allows and your schedules allow. Um, On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with Jeff Poole and Michael Prince from The Mighty Legs Diamond. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Thank Thank you, guys. guys.